0: As Paul said to the Ephesian elders to whom he was bidding farewell, he had not shunned to declare to them all the counsel of God. I say as Paul did that to the elders, I pray that if ever I say farewell to you, I would say the same thing. I have not shunned to declare to you all of the counsel of God. This mandate we have Following the apostolic example of Paul is what we're seeking and endeavoring to fulfill as we go through the Christian doctrine with the help of creeds of the church and founded on the word of God. There's a deposit of truth that's given to the church. It's called the faith in the Bible. Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. We're doing that here. We're setting it forth not only for ourselves, and though we've heard it already, we're setting it forward to the generation to come. And for anyone who might walk in the door and has never heard of these things, preached faithfully in light of the entire word of God, authoritatively as from God and not men, and with teeth so that it has an authority over us, that is, the very truths that are in Jesus. We are considering in our exposition of all the counsel of God, especially following the Heidelberg Catechism Creed, that part of life that concerns life and living, our way of gratitude that we live. Remember that the Catechism is uh, formulated according to three basic truths patterned after the Book of Romans. The first part of our instruction is about sin, And then the second part is about the Savior. And then the third part is the way of gratitude. If you look at the book of Romans, that's what that's all about, and that's the pattern of many a creeds in the Christian church today, also the Reformed. And so we're up to the law of God, that law of God for us to live by, the the so-called third use of the law. We keep that to be holy we would endeavor to know God and what he's revealed for us, and that we want to live as God's people in this world as holy unto him. We're at the third commandment, where God says to Israel and to us, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and the threat is, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We are considering an aspect, a very aspe- a very important aspect of the third commandment, and it has to do with oaths. Lord's Day 37, and I'm going to read from that right now. Uh, in the back of your Psalter, it's there. I'm not sure if it's in the bulletin this week, but page 51, Lord's Day 37 has to do with the oath. It was a big deal back then, by the way. Many in the Reformation were denying any uh, form of oath-taking and using Scripture to back their, uh, their arguments, And it's an important thing today as well that we know the place of the oath has to do with the third commandment. And the question is, may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? The answer is yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it. In order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oaths are approved in God's word and were rightly used by Old and New Testament believers. And then this, may we swear by saints or other creatures. That's taking a hit at the Roman Catholic um, uh, saint, uh, doctrine of the saints. No, we may not swear by saints or other creatures. A legitimate oath means calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to my truthfulness and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such an honor. That's the summary of the catechism teaching of the oath, but this is grounded in the scripture. And of course, and this is what we're going to expound to you today and all of the truth in light of these particular texts. And I'm thinking especially of two texts. One is rather shocking. For the catechism here, and we've always believed and taught in this church, um, uh, is saying that oaths are legitimate. But let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' words, and then we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians 1, but first Matthew 5, and see what Jesus says about oaths in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 33 through thirty-nine or 37, there's these words of the Savior, which come as a shock to us who say oaths are okay. Here's what Jesus says, again, you've heard that it was told to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Don't take any oaths at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, here's a shocking statement. Jesus seems to deny all oaths, swear not at all, and even to say that any oath, anything more than yes or no, to the truth, Is of the devil. Now we want to turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, not to leave you hanging, but to leave you pondering. 2 Corinthians 1. The Apostle Paul himself, apostle of the truth as it is in Jesus, in verses 15 to the end of the chapter, uh, speaks of seemingly a little thing. And then after he speaks of this little thing, he speaks and swears an oath. 2 Corinthians 1.15, And in this confidence, that is, of the Lord, and of the day of the Lord to come, verse 14, in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, Greece, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly or the things I plan Do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? That is, should I be seen to be vacillating, one who changes his mind all the time? Is that the case? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Here's the oath. Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Well, beloved, we have here, as I said before, our calling to set forth the truth of the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that in particular, the truth of the oath, a swearing to the truth of something in the name of God. That's what an oath is. And when we're confronted with this third commandment, we're reminded already in the commandments that there's two commandments in particular that have to do with the tongue. The ninth commandment about bearing false witness against the neighbor And this third commandment, which has to do with lots of other things about taking up the name of God, not in vain, but seriously. But also it concerns what we say about God. And also in special occasions where oaths are required. The commandment comes especially then, and to all of us in all of our life, you shall not take the name of God on your lips in vain. So we could say... If the ninth commandment has to do with bearing false witness against our neighbor, and it does, the third commandment has to do with our bearing false witness against God. And so the first table of the law is what we're dealing with here. It's a sin against God and his truth. So we want to consider this, and especially with regard to the oath and truthful living in general. And so the theme of my sermon is a man of his word, a man of his word, truth, oaths, and a Christian. And I speak of a man of his word and a Christian because I want each of us to apply this. The truth of the oath, the truth of what's behind that truth of the third commandment, and the truth as it is in Jesus, whom Paul testifies of, and at the same time gives an oath, seemingly against the requirement of Jesus, but not at all. In fact, he's fulfilling the heart of the commandment that Jesus is setting forth in Matthew chapter 5. So, a man of his word. Let's hear what God has to say to us in light of the Bible with regard to this, truth, oaths, and what it is to be a Christian today in this culture of non-truth, and where people have no clue almost of who God is, nonetheless of his name and his truth, a man of his word. Now, what I'm getting at there, in case you didn't know or surmise, is that I'm not going to speak, first of all, about a man and his own word. I'm not going to speak about a man who's as trustworthy as his handshake. That's a good thing. But I'm speaking here of a man of God's word. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. And reminding the congregation at Corinth, which he had intended to visit, but which he could not in the providence of God, that he's a man of God's word and therefore a man of his own word, but first of all, a man of God's word. And seeks to reflect, does Paul, that God never changes his mind. God is not fickle. God doesn't say yes here and then no there with regard to the same thing. Nor does God say yes here and no there with regard to the day, as if he changes his mind. No, he's God. And swearing in God's name and living in God's name is exactly that, Living in the one truth that never changes, even though it be to our hurt that we have to suffer for righteousness' sake and living according to the truth and saying the truth even before officials, so be it. Only that we can be a man of God's word. And this is what Paul does almost immediately when he is... uh, has apparently heard that there were people grumbling, as people can do, even in congregations, about a nothing. Paul changed his mind. He said he was going to come. Why isn't he here? must be that there's something about Paul. He's afraid uh, of meeting up with us a second time and afraid of speaking to us because we have questions about his doctrine and, and on and on and on that people can have about men, And about weak men, you could have them about me. And I trust, and I really trust that you've learned to know the weakness of your pastor over 11 years. I haven't been that secretive, have I, of my weaknesses and of my shortcomings? Of course not. And yet, there's something I want to say to you, and Paul wanted to say to them it's not about me. And you're focused on the, the man who might have had different plans and, and might have been sick and couldn't come. But I want you to remember God whom I preached and he never changes. Whose word is always yes or no, but not both. Who's always God. Who will always be God. And the gospel will always be the gospel. That's what's at stake here. With regard to the third commandment and oath, taking and living in the light of the word of God. It's about the truth of God. God is God. And this is what Paul relies on. It's not about a defense of himself. It's about a defense of his God. And it's, it's an amazing how quickly he does this. He says, when I was planning to come to you, did I, did I do it lightly and say, well, you know... If, if, I, if nothing else comes up on Tuesday, I'll, I'll be there. Otherwise, I won't show up because another thing has come up and I'd rather go there. Did I do it lightly when I was planning these things? And the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, he says in verse uh, 17. Am I carnal in what I'm planning to do? And so I do one thing, and then this desire of the flesh gets at me, and, and I'm going to do another thing then because that appealing to me. And I'm afraid of these people, and I'm afraid of once again saying, Thus saith the Lord, and everybody answering, or just about the whole congregation, So what? That's what the minister is up against, you know. All the people and all the sinners and himself who responding to the word of God would say, So what? So you're shouting, so you have a little bit of scholarship, so you've done a little study. It doesn't work for me. Well, the Apostle Paul reminds them by implication of who God is and who God is to Paul. As God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. And he's shifting about. Shifting from the subject of their thinking that Paul was planning and changing his mind and maybe that affects also his gospel preaching. He says one thing at Corinth and another at at Ephesus or something. As God is faithful, our word to you, when we preached it, was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached to, to you among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes And then this, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen to the glory of God through us. Now you have to stop right there because this is the focus of the apostle. The God who's true and the God who's the God of truth and the God whose name you dare not take in vain and the God whose name you dare not swear by, he is the God of Jesus And in this faithful God, revealed in Jesus, all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. Not yes, or maybe, or maybe so, or yes today and no tomorrow, or maybe all the time, and that's it. But yes, and amen. And what Paul is saying here. What he does in all of his epistles is that Jesus is the name of God revealed who confirms the truth of God. Promises here, but all the truth of God. He confirms that there's a God, and when you take the name of God on your lips, and I'm running ahead, but in an oath, that's confirming the name of God in Jesus Christ, the identity of God. The being of God. And when you do that in a court room, or before the justice of the peace, or in the church, or in your home, or writing a letter to somebody, that's a great and wonderful thing. It gives glory to God as Jesus did. Jesus is the one who is the yes of God because well, when he was made flesh and tabernacled among us, he was God among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he was the express image of God and the brightness of his glory. When he came to the earth, we saw that. The apostles saw that. And he came and he walked and he talked and we knew it was God. And we know it's God in the Bible. He's God. We know he's everything about God, truth and mercy, because not only of what he said, and I'll dare say this, not only because of what he said, but especially because of what he did. Jesus is the amen, the yes of all that God is because he died and he rose again and he's our savior. And all that God ever was talking to human beings about was about this redemption act, this death of the mediator for children who are sinners and his resurrection for their justification. In Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen, a double yes. Yes, all that God has said, amen. The word was made flesh confirmation of all that God has said. You see, you can even go back. Jesus is the word of Paul. He's a man of God's word. He's the word of God. A providence, for example. So that all of providence and the care of God and the government of God only has meaning in Jesus. Now it has meaning, of course, always And Jesus was speaking and upholding all things by the word of his power before he came to the earth. You can do that, you know, as the eternal Son of God appointed and promised, he's there. He's really the Savior and the provider there. But after all, before Jesus comes, all that this world knows is promises, promises, promises. And providence, providence, providence. And it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Look at Ecclesiastes. For a sober assessment of everything under the sun. Vanity of vanities. What's the use? Well, beloved, when the Son of God comes, you get a glimpse of what's beyond the sun. S-U-N, children to the sun, S-O-N. And you get a glimpse of something beyond the fog. The fog lifts when there is this reality promise that sets foot on the ground. In the fullness of the time, when God would manifest just how great he is, in glory come down and yet not, Glory come down and descend to the lowest parts of the earth to ascend. And you know the meaning of providence. By Jesus and for him were all things made. Without him was not anything made that was made. He's the goal of it. And then he's the redeemer. And then those promises we see. All that God has ever said in I love you's to his people. They're fulfilled in Jesus. He establishes love. Striking in Romans, I believe, it says God commends his love to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The, the Greek could be translated God established love for us. And that Christ died for us. There's an establishment. There's a yes. There's a truth on the ground, bleeding, dying, rising, ever more living to the glory of the Father. The truth. Paul was this man of truth. The truth of the end as well. In him, in Jesus. Are all the promises of the end. The goal of history. Heaven and hell and everything to the glory of God. The final judgment, it's all there. And if you know Jesus. You know something of this and it's sure it's true. Paul is a man of that word. <laughs> this underlies everything. He quickly turns the people from their yep, 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 about is not showing up. And, you know, maybe having a a fit about it, just like we do about a lot of other a lot of things, don't we? Yep, 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 yep. We're quiet about it, we're more polite. But the complaining remains. We're stuck on people, stuck on the government. Folks, don't you, didn't you know that people are unreliable? A whole mess of people? Paul is saying here there's, there's one who's not. God in Christ reveals. One thing, that's his whole life so that he's a man of that word and then he becomes a man whose own life and word are just like God's. That's the second thing I'm talking about in this first point. It's so vital for us. If we're going to think about oaths and truths and giving glory to God, you think about God's own word to us, his oath. In his own name, because he could not swear by one greater, he said, I love you, Abraham, I'll be your God, I'll be the God of your seed. When you think about that and you think about the work of grace that's not only for you, but in you, you become something as a child of God. You're a man of God's word and your word becomes God's word. And your life is taken up into the life of Christ. This is Paul. And the Pauline doctrine of the prepositional phrase. Grammar. Location. In Christ. In Christ. It's everything. I live in Christ. I live out of Christ. I'm connected to him. Peter would say we're partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine word, beloved. Without becoming God. Not pantheists or strange cultists who imagine religion as becoming God. But we're his children, his image bearers. And it could be even that And it's certainly a proper translation that in verse 20 of the text here, all the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, amen. It could be that the first yes, which is a different word than amen, which is a word for confirmation. The first yes is God's voice. And it could be that, and you could explain it this way, that the second is the church's voice. God says, yea, we say amen, just like angels in heaven they respond to one another. They respond to God. We respond to God. Because notice, all the promises of God in him are in him, yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So there's a yes and there's an amen coming from heaven, going to the church, resounding from the church in confirmation of Jesus. Jesus. And the attestation, the asseveration, the public declaration, there is a God here, and there is a God there, and across the river and over the way. He's God, and He's come to this earth to save sinners. And the call is, believe on Him, and you shall be saved. Ignore Him, and you shall be damned. This was the life of Paul. This is our life. That's behind the third commandment about the prohibition of taking the name of God in vain. And it means that a whole life we live is an amen life before we get to court or the altar and do serious things as if living itself was not serious. Not Paul, for him it was. Verse 17, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes and yes and no and no? Paul was not a man of, of indecision, was he? Uh, maybe he wasn't married because of that. He would have driven his right wife crazy. He was a man of decisiveness. I speak as a man. But here, this is our life, living out of Christ. Or it is hypocrisy, isn't it, even coming to church? And the name and the truth of God as it is in Jesus, it, it drives us to say we're going to plan, but God willing, we'll do this or that. James says that. And we're going to set our hopes on this, and, and, and but maybe not, and But always we're going to live, our joy is going to show itself that we live out of Jesus. Our wisdom, our decisions, our being intentional Christians and not just floating along. It's all going to show that we are God's people. And we need nothing else to show it. Our life, our ordinary yeses and nos. But sometimes we can swear by it. And that's the second point. And here, I would take on those who think that when Jesus in Matthew says, I say to you, do not swear at all, I would take on those who say that means no oaths. The Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation said no no oaths. That's what this means. They not only had a problem with the government so they excluded themselves from any public uh, involvement in government, war, or holding office, but they had a problem with oaths, and they would cite Jesus' words here, or James. And You can read of that in James. He says pretty much the same thing. Jesus is more in detail, and Jesus is combating the Pharisees. Well, uh, and the Catechism reminds us That this was an issue then. May we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently. And yes, when the government demands it, it says, or when necessity requires it. In order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. May we do that. Well, here's uh, always a wise thing. When you come across a text that seems a little puzzling and, and maybe contradictory of the, the church's stance on this, and then the church's stance for millennia, we may take those. Uh, remember to compare the scripture with the scripture. And that's what I'm going to do to you right with you right now. Jesus in this same Sermon on the Mount says he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Remember that. If he was, in fact, saying that we may not swear at all, he was destroying or canceling the law of God. Not only the law, but the Psalms and the prophets. For we read, for example, in Deuteronomy, uh, in verse 13 of chapter 6, And this is a commandment. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name, in the name of the Lord. Very important. These people would be a people of the oath because they were given to fear God and to love God. Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter uh, 4, in verses 1 and 2, he says, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. That's striking. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, as if they returned to somebody else. I fear a lot of the revivals, so-called, and renewals of church nowadays, fanned by the flame of uh, some seminarian's enthusiasm, are not revivals to return to God, but to return to some other thing, some new thing, some God in the image of Those who think that success of the gospel is getting as many as you can into the pew. Well, the Bible says, if you return, O Israel, make sure it's to me that you're returning. And a sign of this will be, if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved, and you shall swear. The Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. Glory leading the way of the nations would be Israel returned to God, swearing in the name of God. Amazing. The psalmist in Psalm 15 says even this, um, asking the question, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your hill, holy hill? He who walks uprightly, the answer is, and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. And then, verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. And he honors those, therefore, who swear to his own hurt and does not change. Now, remember what we've been saying about the life of the Christian, the life of Paul, even before he swears to the Corinthians. He was basing his life on a God who doesn't change. He says yes all the time. He says one thing all the time and in every situation. And here we, we read even the importance of an oath. It's something that you take in the name of God and you're calling him to witness as the God who knows the heart, the God of truth, and you're calling him to judge you should you be lying, the truth is if you take an oath and it's true what you're saying and so on, but it causes your demise or it causes you and and compels you to be faithful to your wife. Even if it's to your own hurt, you shall not change. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change is one who honors the Lord because you said something in his name. And he doesn't change. And if you change and you break your oath and you break your vow, you're saying, well, God changes. Or he's not really serious about the third commandment. Well, beloved, this is all to show that there were oaths in the Old Testament, and if Jesus is saying we should not swear at all, it it cannot mean that he means never, ever, ever. The very fact is that Jesus himself would swear when he's tried. Matthew 26, 63, the high priest puts Jesus under oath. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. He says yes. He says amen. That's how they said, I do then, or it's true. You have an angel of heaven, to name one other example besides Paul's, to whom we'll get presently. An angel in heaven who was seen standing on the sea revelation 10 and on the land he rose up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever and the last i knew beloved angels in heaven don't break any of the commandments of god they're pure he swore in heaven attested to the truth of god from heaven's height and now paul to the corinthians he himself says Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul. But to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. He's swearing. He didn't have to, but he did. Necessity required it, as he's led of the Spirit, to to corroborate his gospel, to confirm, to authenticate the gospel by swearing, that he was not fickle, nor was his gospel. That's what he's doing here. And he's led of the Spirit to do this. Here's this amen man. Here's this one who says amen to Christ. Christ is everything. And he sees an important occasion for him to testify the truth. So what is Jesus' meaning? Beloved, it's simple. I've explained this before. But Jesus, look at the context. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, swear not at all. He goes on. You've got to read, is how you interpret scripture with scripture. Interpret Matthew 5.34A with Matthew 5.34 B, the second part. I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Verse 35, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem it's the city of the great king nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make it one hair white or black, nor shall you swear by the hairs of your chinny-chin-chin, whatever you're going to do. What the Jews were doing here is being evasive. They were afraid that they might be found guilty of taking the name of God in vain. I'll, I'll give them that. But what they did was they would swear then by something that was associated with God, like his throne or or, or Jerusalem, or or by the things that are created, like their hair, or by the earth or or whatever. In other words, they would say something and intend another thing by it, but to get off the hook of having to keep up their oaths, they'd say something that sounded pious i'm going to swear by this and that but anything they would swear by except the name of god because then they'd obviously be guilty of taking his name in vain if they were caught in their subterfuge and their lying and jesus is saying it you do that you swear by jerusalem you're swearing by god because jerusalem is his city You swear by heaven, you swear by earth in heaven's name. Don't do that. You're swearing by God. He created the heavens and the earth. You swear by anything else, it's a creature of God. You're you're ignoring the God who's behind truth. Because the truth of creation is not just the creation. It's the creator. The truth of Jerusalem is God and his grace. And to swear and to sound important De-God's God and enthrones you. That's what it does. How dare you? In any situation. Any situation whatsoever. Can't do that. Should not do that. In ordinary conversation, our yes should be enough. That's why be careful, beloved, when you say, honestly. Think of that. Honestly. And if you don't say that, you're not being honest? What are you saying honestly for? There's other things that people say, and and I say sometimes, uh, to try to shore up our yes and our no. I want to be frank with you. You know, I want to do this. You're saying something that your word wasn't enough, and maybe your whole life isn't enough, and you're trying to make up for it in this conversation, and you're trying to please someone and to tell them that you're true by some other thing that sounds holier than than you yourself. Don't do that. It, it underestimates the power of truth and the power of God and the power of, of your living out of faith. Don't do that. So may we take oaths? Yes, we may. There's lots of examples where this is important as the, the catechism reminds us it, it could be that the government demands it and, and they're not demanding something that's contrary to the Bible here. Necessity may require I remember in church once in my first call, we required of a man who was accused of terrible things that he take an oath. A very solemn occasion. Because no one could get at the truth. She was saying one thing and he was saying another thing. And he was, I think, a little bit, um, he's getting older. And we, we had to, for peace's sake, and this is the point, we had to put him under an oath. In fact, the Bible even says in Hebrews chapter 6, this is what oaths are for often. In Hebrews 6, um, Verse 16, men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. That's what oaths are for. You can't go any further. It's he said, she said, so in a court you come together and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And people used to even hold their hands in a Bible, hold their hand up, hold their hands in a Bible And say, so help me God. That is, God, slay me if I dare to be lying in this court and in the name of God. As if God confirms my lie. Sometimes you wish that people who would lie under oath, perjure themselves, we call it, would die right away. As they will in the end of time when they say, but wasn't I such a great guy in your name, and God will slay them for taking his name in vain. That leads me to this final point, beloved. We live in this age of truthlessness and when vows and courts mean nothing. How do we live here? Really? How do we live as God's people of truth, the amen people who respond to the yea of God, who, who are lovers of Jesus? How do we do that? Two areas of life. First, the church. Got to preach the truth of the surety of God. Remember, Paul says, this leads him to swear by this God, And in his name, all the promises of God in Jesus are yes, and in him, amen to the glory of God through us. We preach that. We must preach that. We preach a God who's the God of yes and no, and not maybe so. You don't want anything different, do you? The worst thing in a pulpit is a yes and no pulpit in the name of nuance, that's the word, the the powerful scholarly word that sounds like you're getting at all the the twists and you're avoiding the simplicity of fundamentalism and literalness of the Bible by saying there's nuance and there's culture to be taken into account. And God says, yes, but it was just for the first century that there only should be males in headship in the church. And that homosexuality was wrong. That's just the first century. Today it's no. We've come a long way, baby. We're a lot more enlightened because of all the scholarship and all the psychologists and everybody else who who wants to be more merciful than God and, and let everybody let it all hang out just so that they're happy. We live in this age. It owes me nothing in this age because there's no God and no Bible to swear on. There's nothing higher. What you see is what you get. Lie detector test. That's what, that'll take the place of the oath. No, it won't. you got to preach as if there's a God in heaven who's come to this earth and whose promises are yea and amen in Jesus. Preach that. That would mean we avoid all kinds of doctrines that are yes and no, like this. God loves everybody, has a great plan for everybody's life. That's preached. But the question is, if so, why is there a hell? What kind of love is that? If I'm a father and I love my child and I'm able to save my child and don't rescue him from the fire... Even though I say, oh, I wish you would get out of your crib, my little boy. And he can't climb. He can't even crawl. What kind of love and what kind of father is that? Preach the love that is yea and amen in Jesus, from which if God has that toward anyone, they shall never be separated. Do you want to hear that? We must preach that. Preach your regeneration. That's all of God. Not something that you cooperate with God with. Then it's yes, you see, God's part, but maybe so, your part. Commentator came up with something that's worth repeating. There's two atoms, right? Yes and no. Pulpit says by the first atom is imputation of guilt and of our depravity. Got that? Original sin. But the other Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, Romans 5, is not our Adam and our head by imputation. No, that's too much. He's ours by cooperation. You see the difference? The one Adam surely imputes to all the human race because he's fallen, all the guilt of Adam, and God does through the fall of Adam. But now in Christ, God needs some help. And it all depends on your cooperating with him. You see, that's what's preached in many a pulpit today. Salvation depends on your decision. And God would have you to be saved, but if you don't decide for him, then he's frustrated. Beloved, that's blasphemy. It is not of him who wills or decides or who runs or who comes to the altar, but of God who shows mercy. That's the yes of God. And that's how we have confidence in heaven. It does not depend on me that I be saved, nor that I keep myself saved. If it did... I can't leave an, lead an amen life. It's maybe and maybe not. I can't be assured. Maybe. I believe in historical Jesus, but the the saving, I don't know. I don't know. The truth of God is Jesus Christ is your Savior. Believe that, and you believe that God is your Father, and he will never let you go. That means also, beloved, in working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, you will be holy because it's sure that God loves that. And because God loves that, you love that, don't you? Don't you hate your sin? I do. My sin. I hate yours too. Because I love God. I love God. How about this? Are you happy or not? The amen of God, Jesus says, through John the Apostle, I write these things that your joy may be full. And you say, all of the other people living as if there's no God in heaven, and what are you doing so down and so distressed and so depressed and so despairing? When God says, "I love you," and my grace is sufficient for you, and as you cast your cares upon me, I'll take them, and I'll take them all away. The and though you sin, I'll get you up, and I'm leading you to glory. Well, beloved, so preach and live. Those are the two things: preach theology of the amen of God, the name of God above every other name, and live in the sure hope of heaven. Because if God is true, let every man be a liar. And therefore, if God is true, this earth isn't going to fizzle out or because of global warning, burn up. It's going to burn with the judgment of God, which we shall escape, that is, the wrath of God, because God is God, and he's our God. Take that name upon your lips, in your oaths, in your life, your marriage vows, be faithful, in all of your commitments to God, the Church of Christ, and God be with you. He will be. That's yes, and that's amen. Amen. Father, we thank you. For the love of God that you showed to us. The love from heaven in Jesus. What a name. We thank you, Lord, that we can live out of faith in him. Have confidence. And though we be fickle, though we change, though we're faithless even, yet you abide faithful. And all the promises, all the truth, Yea and Amen in Jesus. Thanks for Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.